Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for uh, this new year. And you know, as we delve into this book, this book of Revelation, we know that um, there's incredible blessing here. There's incredible treasure. And we also uh, know we need your help to uh, not only interpret it, but to, to receive it and to hear it. And as the, um, the book itself continually beckons that he who has an ear, let him hear. We want to hear what the Spirit has to say. So may the Spirit's presence be with us and help us as we uh, uh, start this journey through this uh, wonderful book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Here uh, is what I want to do. You know, back in February, um, back in February, you know, when news of COVID was starting uh, to come out, uh, you know, Jen and I, we celebrated our 10th anniversary. And uh, for our 10th anniversary, uh, we went to Paris for one of the long weekends. And it seems like such a long time ago. But uh, I remember news of COVID was coming out because we were considering, we're like, should we go? Should we not go? But we ended up going. And we went without the kids. And it was a, a trip that we really enjoyed. So I'm sure as many of you were thinking about 2020, um, and some memories. Uh, this was this was one of the highlights for us, at least. And while we were in Paris, we went to a lot of art museums. And I'm not really into art, and I, I usually find those things kind of uh, kind of boring. So I, I guess I'm not as cultured, but Jen really enjoys going to art museums. So we went to a lot of art museums, and uh, of course, in Paris, you go to the Louvre. So we went to the Louvre, and we did this little tour. And there was one famous painting that I really liked. Uh, in the Louvre. And this painting is called The Wedding at Cana. And it's by this uh, 16th century artist named Paolo Veronese. And I think his, uh, uh, his uh, nationality was uh, Italian. And I want to share this painting with you. So um, let's see. Let me find this painting. All right. So this is the painting that I really like. And when you go to the Louvre, um, this painting is incredibly large. It, it, it was originally meant to be a mural, so you can kind of imagine. I think each of these portraits and each of these figures is kind of like life-size, right? That's how big it was. And there's, of course, like interesting stories about transportation and, uh, you know, it was, um, I guess, torn in a couple places. I think it was ripped in half at one point. I think uh, the air vents leaked and water got on the painting. So this painting has physically been through a lot. But um, what I liked, the first thing that caught my attention, of course, was that it was really large. Uh, but the second thing that caught my attention is, you know, in this mural, it depicts a story that I was at least familiar with in the Bible from John chapter 2. This is supposed to be uh, a picture of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Now, of course, this painting is not meant to be a historically accurate depiction of what this wedding feast uh, may have looked like. And the reason we know that is because there's a lot of anachronistic elements here. So it's a, it's a Venetian banquet, and that Venetian style is kind of projected onto this biblical scene. And not only that, but a lot of the people here are actual historical figures and leaders of different uh, nations at the time, and even the artist himself. So if you look at this guy uh, playing this little instrument in white, uh, that's supposed to be the artist. So the artist himself inserted himself into this painting. But when you analyze this painting too, there's actually a lot of symbolism here that the artist wanted to communicate. So 
you look at this painting and I think immediately your focus goes to Jesus, right? Jesus is here at the center and uh, there is this halo around him. And if you notice, everybody else, their gaze is kind of uh, somewhere else, but Jesus is clearly looking at us right, as the viewer. And let me see if I can zoom in a little bit. Now, directly above Jesus, um, actually pretty much directly above, you have this blade. And what they're doing up here is they are slaughtering a lamb. And if you look at the table, they're actually uh, on their dessert course because they're serving fruit. But uh, the artist intentionally did this as a way of symbolizing and foreshadowing that Jesus would be the slaughtered lamb of God. Then you look to um, the left or to the right of Jesus, maybe to our left, or at least on my screen, it's to my left. And this is supposed to be the Virgin Mary, and she also has this halo around her. But then what you see is in her hand, it's as if she is cupping a glass of wine, but there is no wine in her hand. And what that's meant to symbolize is she is uh, it's representing uh, the new wine that will uh, come uh, through the blood of Christ that Jesus, of course, inaugurates at uh, the Last Supper. And then you go down a little bit and you have all these musicians. And in front of these musicians, there is this um, hourglass. And the hourglass in those days, it was a common symbol that basically referred to the transience of earthly pleasures. So I, I really, I mean, of course, there's probably more symbolism here, but um, I really enjoyed this painting. And you kind of analyze it and look at all the symbols. And it's really interesting, right? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, as I said, I'm not one who's uh, very into art, but uh, I did like this particular painting. Now, the reason I, I open up with that uh, introduction is because um, I think the book of Revelation is uh, written very similar to that, to art, right? There are all these symbols and there's all the, this imagery in here. And Revelation, I don't think is meant to be uh, understood literally, and we're not supposed to understand it as kind of like um, uh, like a photograph, like a historical depiction of things, but it's it's a picture. It's an image. And, uh, you know, there is this uh, simultaneous danger of using art to do more than what it's meant to do. And this painting, of course, wasn't meant to show us what uh, a wedding in Cana would have looked like during that time. But the artist is inserting these symbols and wants to, to communicate certain elements and communicate certain things about Jesus through the painting. And I guess, I think the danger of uh, the book of Revelation can be that as well. And uh, historically, people have used this book to uh, depict things that maybe the book of Revelation wasn't meant to depict. Now, I think the danger for me too, as a preacher is, uh, if you've just found that section really boring, and uh, if you took art history classes, and you didn't really like art history, uh, I guess that's a danger, right? I could it could get a little tedious and I'm, I'm gonna try not to do this, but uh, I guess I could get a little tedious and explain all the individual details. And I don't want to do that and I'm gonna try not to do that. But I do wanna give enough insight so that you can at least gain this appreciation of the imagery and of these visions. And so uh, keeping that in mind now, I think now would be a good time to, to read the scripture passage. And I want you to, um, you know, of course you can read along, but as, as we read along, also kind of imagine you're looking at a painting and try to visualize some of these things. And uh, I think that might help us in terms of um, really receiving Revelation the way uh, 
it's intended to be received. So this is Revelation chapter one, and I wrestled with how much to look at, but we're going to look at the entirety of the first chapter, Revelation chapter one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these, this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. So I think a lot of Christians are probably intimidated by the book of Revelation, and I think it's for a few reasons. First, the book of Revelation, it, it does have a lot of strange imagery that can be a little bit scary. Uh, the imagery of dragons and beasts and plagues and thunder and earthquakes can, of course, be a little scary. And if we were to take uh, a lot of that imagery literally, which, uh, you know, by the way, I, I don't think the way we interpret Revelation is meant to be literal, but... Uh, if we take those images literally, then it can really be scary to think that some of those things might happen. So if those things scare you, and if the imagery scare you, then you might avoid reading the book of Revelation because you just don't want to be scared, right? And second, and somewhat related to that first point, 
this is not the easiest book to interpret, at least on the level of the details. I think the, the bigger picture is clear, but the details are not the easiest to interpret. And Revelation has most, uh, the most references to the Old Testament than, you know, every other book in the New Testament combined. You have allusions to Daniel and allusions to Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah among many of the other Old Testament books and especially the prophetic books. And I'm, I'm probably going to guess that a lot of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament is not uh, familiar to the average Christian today. And so uh, it's a little bit like being in a foreign country and not knowing the, the signs and the symbols of that foreign country. Uh, in this country, uh, you know that a red octagon usually means stop, a yellow triangle uh, usually means yield. And if there's a circle with this red uh, diagonal line through it, it means don't do it, right? So no left turn or no U-turn. And it helps to know the meaning of the signs and the symbols from the Old Testament in order to be able to interpret some of these visions in the book of Revelation. And without having some understanding of the meaning behind these visions, then it becomes kind of like, uh, you know, the kind of art where interpretation is up to the the viewer, right? It's uh, the meaning of it is in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, there's no meaning apart from what something means to you uh, as, as the one looking at the art. So for the, a book that is filled with symbols and visions, then it can lead to some pretty wild interpretations and assertions if you don't have the right tools to interpret some of these symbols and visions. But I don't think we should be intimidated by this book. Uh, I think as Christian believers, this is a book that is incredibly important and one that we shouldn't shy away from. Uh, one of my old professors actually said that this is a book that probably children have an easier, under time, uh, easier time understanding because uh, even without all the work of knowing the imagery from the Old Testament, the message is abundantly clear. Jesus wins. Right? It reads like a picture book and it shows Jesus wins. And adults are the ones who tend to get bogged down by trying to understand all the details and the particulars of the vision. But when you take a step back, that's essentially what the book of Revelation shows us. Jesus wins. And that's why ultimately it is an encouraging book. It's a book that encourages the church to persevere in difficult circumstances and to resist compromise because Jesus wins. It's a book that reminds us about the reality of this, our spiritual enemy in Satan and how the spiritual realm has very real consequences in this world. But even though Satan is on the attack, it reminds us he ultimately loses and Jesus wins. And for this reason, this is a book that is meant to encourage us and to be a blessing. In fact, this is uh, the only book that starts off by saying, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Revelation itself tells us that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. This is a book that is meant to bless us and bless the church. And so, you know, the first chapter, of course, is very full. And I think the way I'm going to preach through the series, I'm not going to go uh, chapter by chapter and preach on every chapter, but I'll probably be somewhat selective. But, you know, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, it's kind of like the first four notes in Beethoven's Fifth Sym Symphony in that it sets the, uh, the structure for the rest of the, the book. You know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, uh, it starts out, bum, 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 right? And then you kind of hear different iterations of that through the entire piece. Uh, a lot of the themes that you see in this first chapter are going to come up again and again in this book. 
And this isn't necessarily the kind of book that is read in this uh, strict linear fashion, but it's more of like a spiral that kind of goes around and around and repeats the similar themes, but eventually it gets to the end and it's going somewhere. So uh, what I'm going to do today is, uh, by way of introduction is I want to touch on a number of these themes today. And uh, as we return and look through this book of Revelation, what you're going to hear is like that bum, 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 bum over and over again coming up. And some of these themes will be coming up again and again. Now, this is also something that is written to the church and for the church. And so on the one hand, it is addressed to specific churches in history who are experiencing some form of persecution and being tempted to compromise in their faithful witness. Uh, these seven churches were located in Asia Minor, which is on the western side of modern Turkey. And there were individual messages addressed to each of these churches, which a few of us have been praying through for the last seven weeks. But... Uh, at the time of John, there weren't just seven churches in Asia Minor. In fact, commentators say there was at least like 10 to 11 churches in this area. And as you read the book of Revelation, you kind of have to ask yourself, why is John addressing just these seven? And uh, the answer is seven is, a, is a, an important number, right? Seven is a symbolic number. The number seven is everywhere in the book of Revelation. You have the seven spirits and seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven angels, seven plagues, right? The number seven is everywhere. And there's a reason for that. The reason is the number seven signifies fullness or completion. And it's like the creation narrative where God completed the work of creation in seven days. So when John addresses this prophecy to the seven churches, it really means this. This prophecy is addressed to the entire church, to the complete church. This message is not just for these seven churches in Asia Minor, but this is a message that is actually for the entire church through history. And there are a few things that are universally true about all churches in history. First, churches have always and will always experience trials. And that's what John writes in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. As he identifies himself to these churches, he is establishing a point of solidarity. Together, they will always share in suffering in the kingdom and in the call to persevere because they are all one in Jesus. And on account of this shared identity that every church has, there will be a shared experience, although this experience will look different to different churches and different periods of history. Now, the reason why the church will face tribulation is something that we're going to see later on in this book. But it's because Satan has been thrown down by Jesus and experienced a major blow. And as a, in response to that, Satan has become angry and furious and he goes off and he makes war on the church and he can attack the church through the spirit of the beast who oppresses and persecutes or he attacks the church through the spirit of the prostitute who brings temptation through the desires and lusts of the heart but regardless of the strategy ultimately satan's goal is to attack the church and to bring the church down you see what that means is satan wants to ultimately take away the witness of the church. In verse 12, John sees seven golden lampstands, and we know that these seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches because verse 20 interprets that vision for us and says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, a lampstand is designed to shine light in the dark, and ultimately that's what the church is meant to do. Now, this imagery of lampstand 
it's taken from the temple and it is used to signify the temple. So, for example, in Zechariah 4, an angel shows Zechariah a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps. And that vision is meant to encourage Zerubbabel to finish rebuilding the temple after there was some opposition. And the corresponding word that goes along with that vision is this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. And what the angel is saying is that the temple would not be rebuilt by human power, but ultimately it would be rebuilt on account of the spirit of God. And so you see the lampstand was a piece of furniture in the temple. And uh, it stood uh, basically in, in the holy place right before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And if you read uh, Numbers 8, it gives these instructions on exactly where to place the lampstand because the Jewish people understood that the light that emanated from these lamps, it represented the presence of God. And so when John sees seven lampstands, which represent the church, it is charged with meaning in terms of what it is saying about the church. Now, unlike the days of Zechariah, there's a new temple and that new temple is the church. And as a new temple, the church illuminates the presence of God in this world. Just as the old temple was built by the power of the Spirit of God, so now is the church built and empowered by that same Spirit. But you see, Satan wants to put that light out, and that's the reality of the spiritual battle that we are in. Satan wants to snuff it out, snuff out the church's light, and Satan wants the church to ultimately lose its witness. Satan wants Christians to lose hope and to drown in despair and to lose faith. Satan wants Christians to compromise in the truth and compromise in their uh, moral purity and lose a sense of the authority of God's word. And the last thing that Satan wants to see the church do is to repent and to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus. And so in fury, Satan's frantically trying to blow out the light of the church. And of course, he could do that quite easily if it weren't for one thing. And this goes back to the ultimate message of Revelation. Jesus won, right? Jesus won. He wins. He is the victorious one. Because you see, the church, of course, is not strong on its own. We are not strong on our own. Can you honestly look at our church or any other church and conclude, wow, these people are perfect, and I feel comfortable putting the future of the church in the hands of these people, right? Absolutely not. But you know where the encouragement comes from? It comes from the vision of the Son of Man who walks in the midst of the lampstand. Let me, uh, I know it's not projected, so let me actually read this vision again. And, um, you know, if you want to close your eyes and just try to imagine or envision these words. John sees the Son of Man. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his waist. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, of course, there's a lot of details here. A lot of the imagery comes from uh, the visions in the book of Daniel, uh, in particular chapters 7 and 10. 
But this vision tells us a lot of things about who Jesus is. You know, first it tells us that Jesus is the one who tends to the church. Uh, in the temple, the priest would tend to the lampstands, right? Make sure that the, the lampstands would keep burning with oil. And uh, when this image, this vision of the Son of Man with the long robe and golden sash, that's meant to uh, elicit thoughts of uh, a priest because this is priestly attire. So what it's saying is the church is not on its own, but Jesus tends to the church as a lampstand. And he does it mainly through uh, correction and exhortation, which you see in uh, chapters two and three. And we see that, um, we'll see that in the next uh, seven letters in chapters, right, in the next two chapters. But second, Jesus is also the one who brings judgment. And he brings judgment on the basis of his righteousness and his purity. The eyes of fire tells us that he can look into our hearts and he knows our true spiritual condition. Uh, there is no tricking Jesus, right? So he can judge us perfectly. Not only that, but the burnished bronze refined in a furnace, that also is imagery associated with judgment and purity. It's only when this bronze is put to the fiery furnace that all the impurities burn away and what is left is this burnished bronze. And that serves as a foundation for the church. And not only that, the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth also alludes to his role as a judge. And what Jesus is going to do is he is going to judge disobedience in the church and in the world with the sword of his mouth. Third, it tells us Jesus is a sovereign one whose authority rules over all of heaven and earth. You know, in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of one who would bring an end to worldly kingdoms, to Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And this vision is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel's vision and that Jesus is a sovereign king who would bring an end to worldly kingdoms. When we look at uh, chapters four and five, uh, we are going to see that Jesus is the one who ultimately sits upon his throne as a king and he rules over all of creation while all of creation responds and worships him. And fourth and lastly, Jesus is the victorious warrior who conquers over his enemy. And that's what the face like the sun shining in full strength is meant to communicate. Uh, that's a phrase used in Judges 5, and it refers to the victorious warrior who is, uh, uh, I guess, basking in his victory. Jesus is the mighty warrior who defeats his enemies. Now, if you take the images of this vision and combine it with what it tells, about, tells us about who Jesus is, what does that do to us, right? I think what it does is it probably makes us tremble a little bit. You know, if you have the right view of who God is, if you have the right view of who Jesus is, that he is the righteous judge, he is the sovereign king who rules over all, he is the mighty warrior who conquers all his enemies, and coming into his presence should be a terrifying experience. It should be an intimidating experience. And that's the reaction that John has because when he sees him, he falls to his feet as though dead. But then Jesus says something to John that alters the way that John fundamentally will relate to him. Jesus says this, fear not, right? Fear not. John, do not be afraid. Even though you see me as I am in my power, in my authority, and in my might, do not be afraid. And of course, it's reminiscent of the pattern of many of the prophets. After they receive a vision, they are encouraged and strengthened. 
and they receive more revelation from God. So if you remember Isaiah, when he encounters uh, God, the holy, holy, holy one, he says, woe is me. And then this heavenly creature comes and touches his lips with burning coal and says, your sin is atoned for. You know, John hears similar words of comfort and encouragement. Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying, you don't have to be afraid. I am the sovereign one who is over all of human history from its beginning to the end. I entered into that history and I died upon the cross, but I'm not dead. I defeated death and now I am resurrected and I am alive forevermore. Therefore, fear not. And while we should still maintain uh, that Jesus is the righteous judge with flaming lips, I mean flaming uh, eyes, that Jesus is the sovereign king, that Jesus is this mighty warrior, that he is awesome in all of his ways. The way we relate to one who is so great and powerful is not defined by fear and trembling anymore. Rather, our great and mighty Jesus is the one who offers us the tree of life, the crown of life, authority over the nations, white garments, to become a pillar of the temple and to have access to sit with him upon his throne. And these are all the promises that you read about in the seven letters to the seven churches in the next two chapters. Jesus wants to use his power and his authority ultimately for our good and for our joy because he is good and gracious. And that is ultimately what defines how we can relate to Jesus, the Jesus of this vision. You know, my daughter has been um, reading the Chronicles of Narnia books and uh, I guess listening to it on audio. And, uh, you know, in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, there is this famous passage. And it's so interesting that uh, as my daughter was like listening to it, this is a passage that kind of stuck out to her too. And my wife said she started asking questions about it. But, uh, you know, in this story, there is this lion and as named Aslan, and he represents the Christ figure. And like throughout the, the story, when children uh, start to hear about Aslan, they, uh, they feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? They feel a little bit nervous and maybe even a little bit scared. And so there's this one scene and one child starts to ask uh, Mr. Beaver some questions. And this child asks, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And according to this vision, you know what? Jesus is not safe, but he is good. And because he is good, we do not have to be afraid of him. But because he's not safe, but because he's the mighty conqueror, because he is the one who ultimately wins, we also do not have to be afraid of Satan and of his attacks. Jesus gives us every resource, uh, including his uh, discipline, including his correction. But Jesus gives us every resource to live a life of repentance, to be the church as the church is meant to be, which is to be lampstands in a dark world. And so as we think about, you know, our, our Christianity in the West tends to be very uh, individualistic and, and, and personal, and even churches are somewhat um, uh, I guess focused on, on 
it's um you know it's particular church but uh, just think about all believers across all time all churches across all places that together uh, we are the lampstands in the world and uh, that's our calling and that's what we're meant to be um but I think two things, we have to capture the sense of this vision of who Jesus is, to be in awe of him, but to also know his goodness. And uh, in response, I think we have to be willing to repent and have the humility to repent uh, so that we might follow after Jesus all the more. Let me pray for us. God, as we begin this, um, this trek going through this uh, book that is so deep, so dense, but also so simple, we pray, God, that you would um, you would speak to us in very specific ways. Uh, we pray, God, that you would help us to capture a vision of Jesus as he is. Uh, we pray, God, that you would remind us of uh, what the church is meant to be. We pray that you would remind us of the spiritual battle. And when it feels like uh, we are uh, losing in the spiritual battle, uh, that this vision of Jesus and the words of Jesus uh, would lead us to a place of repentance so that we might overcome and that we might uh, have access and receive the very promises, the very things that Jesus wants to give to us. Your gospel message is so precious and um, the fact that you would make uh, your church lampstands in a dark world um, is unfathomable and yet you do it and you tend to us and you make sure that your lampstands remain lit and so help us uh, help our church good news church help all the churches in new york city help all the churches across the country help all the churches in the world um, be the presence of god as your temple in jesus name we pray amen <laughs>